Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today's podcast is entitled Healthcare Proposals, Promises, and Positioning. And today we're going to try to look at three things. First, we're going to take a look at the healthcare environment today and where we stand. Second thing we're going to do is take a detailed look at where we're going in the world from a healthcare perspective, given that we are in a presidential election and there are a lot of various activities occurring within the policy arena of the healthcare world. And then last, we're going to look at healthcare from an investing perspective and take a look at where there may be opportunity, both from a short-term perspective and a long-term perspective. So I am pleased to be joined today by two special guests. First, I would like to introduce my colleague, Mark Horst, who is a senior portfolio manager here at Wilmington Trust, as well as the healthcare analyst. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Tony. Happy to join you. And then uh, secondly, we're joined by Chris Pope. Chris is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And previously, Chris was director of policy research at West Health, a medical research organization health policy fellow at the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce, and research manager at the American Enterprise Institute. His research focuses on healthcare payment policy, hospital market regulation, and insurance market reform. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, Politico, and other outlets in the media. Chris, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I thought we would start the conversation by just talking a bit about healthcare. Healthcare is such an interesting area because obviously it has very significant economic implications. In fact, healthcare is the second largest sector of our economy. Technology probably comprises around 22 or 23% of the U.S. economy. Healthcare has not only very important economic consequences, but it's also a very emotional and a very personal issue for many. On the one hand, you have the baby boomers, a very growing part of our population in terms of individuals that are approaching retirement or retiring and looking for increasingly large consumption of healthcare. And they have strong views around healthcare. It's very important to to their decisioning from a political standpoint. And then also on the other side of the continuum, perhaps you have millennials who are very focused on this idea that healthcare is not free to everybody in the United States. And that's a very politically important issue to to millennials. So, Chris, let's start with you, if we could, and and talk a little bit about, we've been on a journey in the United States over the last decade where we had the Obamacare Act, the Affordable Care Act, about a decade ago. We had a subsequent pushback. We had a very important Supreme Court case named Sebelius where essentially the Supreme Court validated most of the provisions, the constitutionality of most of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act albeit we have a new case that's now come in front of the Supreme Court uh, relative to the individual mandate. Now, that case won't be decided until after the election, but it does seem as though there's being another run being made at potentially trying to invalidate the Obamacare Act. And it's a political football, if you will. The president and Biden are highlighting various angles on health care in their their efforts to, to win the election in the fall. So let's just start out, Chris, maybe at a very general level, which is that so much focus on healthcare in the country. How do you think of the sort of general obstacles 
general feasibility, if you will, of major change in the healthcare arena from a public policy standpoint after the the election, regardless of who might win? Well, I think that's a great question. The first thing that I think of when I think of where we are with health policy is really to bear in mind that we didn't start making healthcare policy yesterday or even 10 years ago. Major health policy in the United States is basically 70 years, 70 years old, really since World War II. And policy has been led over policy for decades, really, trying to tinker with the system, adjust, fix holes, patch up problems, respond to people's needs. And so the healthcare system that we have today is not necessarily any single ideological design. It's really an incremental product of trying to respond to a whole host of different concerns and balance different trade-offs. And that means that the system we currently have reflects many preferences that people have that have kind of built up difficult trade-offs. And it's actually pretty hard to change because the reason we have the system that we have is really because it meets a lot of different, often conflicting needs. And so when you try to change it, you quickly learn why it is that we have the system that was produced in the shape that it is today. And that makes it very hard to change. And Chris, you know, when I think about it, the healthcare system in the U.S. is somewhat a unique uh, animal, if you will, in that we have this very deeply capitalist approach to our economy and our society Yet healthcare is is special because everybody on some level does need healthcare, if not deserve healthcare. Consequently, there's an awful lot of regulation that goes into healthcare, and of course, there are very unique risks. There's a paternalistic, protective role that government needs to play. And so, compared to most other areas of the economy, it should not be surprising that we do have a significant amount of regulation and legislation around healthcare. Yeah, that's that's certainly the case. Even just to talk about the dollars involved, about half of healthcare spending in the United States is public spending. It's Medicare, it's Medicaid, it's other entitlement programs, and the half of healthcare spending that is private spending is mostly employer controlled. It's employer sponsored insurance. It's employers that pick insurance plans, and then those essentially determine how hospital and physician services are paid for. And individual consumers uh, really don't have that much control over much healthcare spending. That's very, very different to um, to, to most other sectors of the economy. When, uh, when when you buy a car, these are marketed to individuals. When you buy groceries, it's individuals that are making the, the purchase choice. With healthcare, individuals really control only a very small share of spending, at least to the, to the extent they, they do control it. It's very much within the context of employer plans that often they, they don't control themselves. So let's talk about, Chris, the specifics around some of the, the candidates. We have the president, of course, who it's not really clear what his real goals are with respect to, to health care, but he does have a new proposal. Tell us about what the president might do if he's reelected, if you think he would do anything different relative to his first term in terms of health care. Yeah, so I, I think the main thing to notice about a potential Trump re-election is that when he came in in 2017, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. And so there was this initial push for a legislative revision of the Affordable Care Act. That ended up not really going anywhere other than really the the repeal of the individual mandate. And the big difference, I think most people probably agree, is that if Trump wins re-election this November, it's very unlikely that the Republicans are going to pick up the House. 
And so there would be even less possibility for major legislation to come through a Trump second term than we saw in the first term. So I think in a Trump second term, we probably would be talking about executive orders, really, or bipartisan agreements, potentially. But even with executive orders, most of the things that the Trump administration would want to do, it's already had three years to do. So to what extent, the extent to which they might want to do major executive orders in healthcare, I'm not sure there's a huge amount left that they haven't already done. And his major interest in any event is to limit government spending on the sector in any case, rather than expand it, correct? Yeah, I mean, that with spending, that is, you're very much talking about budget agreements with Congress. The budget director at the White House, Mulvaney, is definitely a fiscal conservative. So over the past couple of years, the administration has been very much in favor of spending restraint. I think that would continue to some extent, although I think that, that again, is probably going to be sensitive to staffing decisions if there were to be a second term. I think it'd be really interesting, Chris, to get your take on why it is that our per capita spending is, in fact, so high relative to other countries without being able to offer the universal entitlement. So I think one of the main reasons why healthcare spending is so much higher in the United States than in other countries is that healthcare is simply just a labor-intensive industry. And it's an industry that requires a lot of very skilled labor. And the United States just has higher wage rates than, than other countries. And this, just, this isn't just in healthcare. It's in every sector of the economy that our, our wages are really twice as high as many other countries like France. It's not just doctors that are paid two, three times as much here as they are in France. You find even that teachers are paid twice as much here uh, as they are in France. And so if you want the medical system to, to treat people to an equivalent level, you just have to spend more on it. And then there's also the complicating factor that our, our, our disease burden is higher. We have a much higher obesity rate than many other countries around the world. And that means that we, t we our population tends to ha suffer from the, what you might think of the more expensive diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, cancer. The rates of all those diseases are significantly higher, often, often twice as high as they are in, in other countries. And so the money to treat cases has to, has to come from somewhere. And this obviously tends to come from insurance premiums and taxes and, and so on. And then there, there's a third consideration which accounts for our higher spending, which is that we just have a much higher level of, of care than many other countries do. If you go to an American hospital, like the equipment is more modern, the, uh, the service level is at a higher, at a higher level, the, the intensive care is higher. And so to support the, the, this level of service, we, we spend a lot more. And also we don't ration care to the extent that other countries do. In single-payer countries like Britain or Canada, there are many, many treatments that are just not available to people. Like Britain, for instance, has has a has essentially a rule that if um, if a drug costs more than thirty thousand dollars per year of life that it saves, it's just not going to be covered. 
and that's across the board. Right. And this this is an absolute rule in terms of drugs, but it's it's a soft rule that applies to many other types uh, of services that you'll you'll find care that's just not available for for orthopedic services, but then also for really expensive uh, neurological services, you'll have long waiting lists and patients won't be able to access the services. So that that does save money. Does mean that these countries spend a lot less on healthcare, but they're just not getting the services that Americans are accustomed to. And the other thing I wanted to ask on this point is that I've always had a, a perception, perhaps falsely, that one of the reasons that our costs are so much higher is due to the legal system in the U.S. and the liability insurance. Is that really material? Is that a myth? Yeah, I mean, it has some impact, and I think it's been quantified, certainly the share of physician services. There have been various attempts to quantify it. I think it's only maybe a couple of percentage. I think that the furthest you can take that argument is you can probably say that more tests get ordered, the, the care, the physicians are more uh, risk averse in their practice and so tend to spend more uh, in terms of the, the nature of service delivery. But I think it, it's probably not accounting for the great difference in the spending levels between countries. Those are really about yep. rationing, it's about wage levels, and it's about access to care. Let's pivot to Biden. He's got a good chance of unseating President Trump. Obviously, he was involved in, uh, as the vice president at the time, the installment of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. He seems to be pretty happy with that. He's talked about some expansion, but what are your thoughts in terms of what might get done if we do have a President Biden? Well, that's a great question. I think, first of all, probably just the, and people I think can instinctively understand this, is that it would, to a large extent, be a restoration of the Obama administration. I think Vice President Biden sees himself a bit in in that sense. Priorities from the administration, it would probably be in line very much with, with where the Obama administration were. In terms of things that are going to cost money, you're going to need new legislation. So if you're thinking about adding subsidies to the Affordable Care Act for people to purchase coverage from the individual market, insurance in the individual market, that would require congressional appropriation, which currently would mean having some votes from a Republican Senate or having Mitch McConnell willing to go along with it. So I think it is possible, I I think, that, that you could have a legislative deal where Republicans would add some funds for subsidies for the individual market in return for some Republican priorities, potentially some insurance reforms that Republicans have been looking to do. And then again, on drug prices, to what extent you would have any any big action there. I think any radical change is very, very, very unlikely in either direction, just because Democrats are likely to hold the House and the majority of either party is likely to be very slim in the Senate. So I think you're likely to have not a huge amount of change legislatively, even if there is a public option established it's unlikely to differ very greatly from the private insurance options that currently exist because getting a public option that is very different to private options would require a large amount of subsidies. And and for that to happen, you would need probably a very strong Senate majority for Democrats to be able to push it through. And that still seems very unlikely. In terms of executive orders, what could be done? I think you probably see a Biden administration maybe try to roll back some of the 
executive orders that the 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 Trump administration has done. Although even then, I think it would probably be more tinkering at the edges. So I think with either Biden or, or Trump winning, from a health policy point of view, because Congress is still likely to be so divided regardless of what happens, you're you're likely to see continuity. So I, I think you're, you're likely to see a fair amount of continuity in the healthcare space, regardless who wins the presidency in the fall. Great, Chris. Thank you. So let's pivot uh, and get Mark in the, involved in the conversation here. So Mark, one of the areas that, of course, and Chris has, has touched on it, is drug pricing that has been very much in the press over the last several years. I think Chris has given us a pretty clear indication that we're not likely from the top down a real change in how companies can price for drugs. Yet there's still some self-policing involved, obviously. Can you tell us a little bit about how the industry has evolved from pharmaceuticals, drug manufacturers, et cetera, in terms of how they're pricing medicines and what impact that's had on their profitability and their appeal as an investment destination? Yeah, thanks, Tony. And it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned self-policing because that's really what the biotech and pharmaceutical companies have done over the past several years, really as an effort to diffuse some of the egregious actions that were taken five to six years ago from the likes of Martin Scarelli and others that were increasing prices 700, 1500% per year on drugs that had very, you know, limited usage across the marketplace. Today, most pharmaceutical and biotech companies are increasing drugs once a year as opposed to four or five times a year, doing it at the beginning of each year with an average price increase probably in the low to mid single digits. So they have really adjusted to the new framework that's out there in terms of drug pricing. And Chris talked about the uh, cardiovascular industry. That's an area where we've actually seen new therapies have to come out and cut prices based on initial launch as they are competing head-to-head against legacy products that have gone generic. Brand names such as Lipitor and Plavix were highly effective in reducing cholesterol and improving cardiovascular outcomes. As a result, the burden for these new therapies to, to show a differentiated outcome makes it harder. And if they can't do that in order to compete in the marketplace, they're forced to cut price. Now to your second point about, you know, impact in the marketplace and from the investment community, one of the things that I look at and a lot of others have started to look at today is not what the annual revenue increase is on a particular drug But what is the script growth, i.e., what is the underlying volume growth that these drugs are seeing? And from an investor standpoint, we look for drugs that are not only increasing revenues, but also increasing adoption across their respective industries. Those are the drugs and companies that have really outperformed over the last couple of years. So when you think about the system as a whole, specifically thinking about pharmaceuticals and drugs, it sounds like the system is working. It does sound like on the one hand, companies are able to earn a fair but not exorbitant profit because there is competition and it is continuing to incent companies from a research and development standpoint to continue to produce new benefits. And indeed, these companies are attractive investment opportunities. Obviously, selection of individual companies is important. But then on the other hand, there's not so much latitude for these companies that they are in a sense, achieving a return on it, on investment or return on equity that is 
relative to other areas of the economy, really significantly in excess of what we would see elsewhere. Does that sound right? It does. And the other thing that the dynamic that's going on, given these events is these companies are really focused on developing therapies where they're currently, you know, limited, limited effective drugs on the market or effective therapies, or they think there's truly an unmet medical need. And where that exists, we think that they can still return, generate an adequate rate of return. The important thing to remember is all this. A lot of these drugs that come to the market often are the third and fourth iteration of the drug. So they may have had previously clinical trials that failed to get them to a point of success. And these companies still need to get rewarded. But to that point, I still think they can get rewarded by the market, again, for things that are innovation and improve healthcare outcomes. Where we see that, I think they can have price and generate you know, positive returns, not for the company, but also for the investors. And certainly we're all living with a fairly scary situation right now around the coronavirus. And we see many companies around the world and including in the United States that are moving very quickly to try to develop both a therapy and a vaccine for the virus. And so there does seem to be incentive for companies to do this. System seems to be working fairly well. So Mark, there's been a lot of volatility actually in the healthcare sector from a market standpoint. In fact, despite the significant drawdown that we've seen in the markets due to the coronavirus, we've seen a significant resurgence in the healthcare sector generally. If you think about where valuations are today, and assuming that we had a, a Biden presidency, when you think about the investment opportunities over the long term for long-term investors, what do you see as the opportunity, both in terms of the overall sector, what specific industry groups do you think may be most appealing? Yeah, I mean, obviously the market's been a pretty volatile place. We've had some big up days. We've had some big down days. Healthcare's participated on both sides of the market. You think about companies such as United Healthcare. Anthem and Cigna, really as the, the, the Democrats shifted and really with Biden taking the, the lead, the most negative outcome that could have happened or could have been viewed by the market seems to be less likely today. So these stocks, the managed care stocks, the healthcare service stocks were underperforming. And more recently, they've been the strongest performers. Conversely, other areas that have been more safe havens in healthcare, such as life science and tools, healthcare technology, uh, medical devices. These are areas that were deemed to have less government involvement or could be less impacted from potential presidential mandates. Outperformed pretty handedly last year, but more recently, they have actually underperformed to the managed care stocks. Overall, though, despite kind of the near-term underperformance with the medical device stocks, that's an area we continue to like on a longer-term basis. And it's not just medical device stocks. It's across the industry where companies that we think are generating innovation or creating new therapies that are differentiated to create differentiated outcomes, we think those companies will be rewarded. Do you think that this is a good entry point for investors that may not be overweight, these areas within the healthcare sectors? If we step back and take a longer term look and kind of since the end of 2018, healthcare as a sector has underperformed the broader S&P 500 by almost 10%. And if you think about technology, another sector where companies that are driving innovation can be rewarded, it's underperformed the tech sector by over 30%. 
So I feel like a lot of these concerns about government involvement or potential factors have been really priced into the stocks today. The thing that we continue to focus on is, are there going to be unexpected changes in the policy? Are they going to take more of an onerous approach to healthcare that could either stifle innovation or potentially reduce the current standard of care? That would get us more cautious, but overall, I think healthcare is a very interesting sector today. So thank you very much, Mark. And Chris, I'm going to give you the last uh, perspective, if you will, today before I, I wrap us up. And what I'd like to ask you, Chris, is that while I know that your specialization is not necessarily investing, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to hear from you, Chris, when you think about the various industry groups within healthcare, whether it be the insurers, the pharma and biotech companies, the services and providers, hospitals, et cetera. Where do you think from a public policy standpoint or even from a private sector standpoint, where do you see the greatest interest and the greatest potential as we move forward over the next decade? Because that obviously has to inform where investors might find opportunity. That's an interesting question. The one thing that I think is probably the most transformative trend that, that we're likely to see is really what's happening with Medicare Advantage, which is the private Medicare plans. And these over the past decade have basically soared from the private Medicare plans being about 20% of Medicare to this year, something like 38, 37% of Medicare beneficiaries being enrolled in private plans. And within five years, it could well be the case that the majority of Medicare beneficiaries are in private Medicare Advantage plans. That's really potentially quite transformative to the healthcare sector as a whole, because these are plans that are more oriented towards managed care, potentially more more integrated, more of an HMO type model. And once you have the majority of Medicare beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage plans, that changes the political dynamic about how how Washington starts to think about Medicare, how it starts to think about uh, managed care, and, and how it thinks about these plans. A similar dynamic has been happening on Medicaid with, with the growth of, of managed care, uh, with, with the growth of managed care organizations running these essentially at the state level. So I, I think that really is is the growth opportunity, and even on the, on the and sort of the commercial private insurance side. And I think people are sort of thinking about where where does that go in the future? And I think a lot of people are starting to think about does the employer market shift away? The Trump administration has been thinking about this. Does the employer market shift away from employers purchasing plans to individuals purchasing plans? Are there policy changes that could be made to move in that direction? And again, I I would say that probably favors the the managed care carriers over traditional fee-for-service insurers. Very interesting. Well, I want to thank you, Chris, uh, and Mark as well for what's been, I think, a very fascinating and very important conversation today. Thank you both for being here. Let me summarize, I think, three key takeaways. I think the first thing is that we don't expect to see really any major public policy changes. It's such a big space, of course, there will always be changes on the margin. We're just not seeing anything on the scale of the Affordable Care Act a decade ago coming up on the horizon unless somehow the Supreme Court should essentially strike down the individual care mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which would be a real wild card. But other than that, we're really not seeing any major changes from a government standpoint in the U.S. Second thing is that 
There are a lot of interesting investment opportunities overall, and we think that the healthcare sector, which is a fairly defensive area of the market during a recession, we think that the healthcare sector is an area that deserves an overall overweight in investment portfolios. And then thirdly, there are some really interesting specific areas within the healthcare sector that we think remain interesting, namely the medical device area, certain companies that are carefully selected within the pharmaceutical and drug area. And then lastly, potentially over the longer term, looking at the transitions that are occurring towards the managed care arena that Chris talked about. And that's something that we're going to continue to monitor as uh, portfolio managers. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.